One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Tortoise. Hello, it's James. I can't quite believe it, but it's actually the week ending Friday the 6th of October. This year just seems to have galloped past, but here we are, deep autumn, in the Tortoise newsroom. Welcome to the news meeting. I am ending this long-running saga. I am cancelling the rest of the HS2 project. Sacked and then arrested. It's been quite the day for Lawrence Fox. Chaos on Capitol Hill. The House of Representatives in a state of peril following that historic ouster of Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Paris is enduring a bedbug infestation. The tiny pests have been reported in movie theatres and even public transport. So why did Just Stop Oil decide to disrupt a performance of Lingus Pearl? Why not? I'm joined today by Jess Winch. Jess, good to see you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Hi. Jeevan Vasagar, how are you? Hi, James. I'm well. And forgive me for being a little starstruck and overexcited, but also Clive Myrie. I don't know whether we've airlifted you off a roof in Kiev <laughs> or just essentially bundled you in the truck from the BBC yes. newsroom to be with us, but it's brilliant to have you here, It's Clive. great to be here. What we invite people in to do, which is really to make sure that in our view at Tortoise, we don't settle into a track. You know, part of the idea of Tortoise itself was to have an argument with the news judgment of other newsrooms. And of course, before you know it, you're actually convincing yourselves you're right. So you need someone from outside (laughs) to say, no, 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 you're seeing this all wrong. But actually, I mean, because you must be doing something of the rounds at the moment, promoting Everything is Everything, the book, which is, my read on it is part memoir, but Mm -hmm. actually part argument with the way in which we're seeing the world. Yeah. And also, strangely true. for you, about you. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a social history um, of Britain, of my life, of multiculturalism, um, and of the way that um, society has changed over, over the last 50, 60 years of my lifetime and a little bit before that because it's bookended by two coronations. That of the Queen, 1953, and my mother went to see her on her first Commonwealth tour in the Caribbean in Montego Bay, and King Charles's coronation, which I reported on and I covered um, here in the UK. And it's about the transformation of my life, my family's life, and Britain's life, as it were, and to an extent the world too. And, and it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think one of the things that we rightly beat ourselves up about in the news business is Mm. that we claim to be witnesses to history. We 
do witness it, but we sometimes miss it. Yeah. Well, I hope that in this conversation, you know, the idea here is everyone pitches a story and we then try and make a judgment call, each of us mm. on what should lead the news. And at the end, I'm in the editor's chair, so I'll try and give a running order. But it'll be really interesting to hear yours and particularly how much your news judgment has changed in the light of reading the book. I suspect <laughs> a bit, Clive. Um, all right, well, let's yeah. start. Jess, why don't you go first? Long story short, what's yours? Sexual harassment in the British Army. Jeevan? Why can't we build things? Clive? Migration, deep dive. Okay, it's going to be chewy. <laughs> Strap in. Um, Hopefully not like dodgy meat. Jeevan, <laughs> <laughs> um, why don't you, you go first? So, James, I mean, I appreciate this story is the chronicle of a death foretold. Uh, we might have seen it coming uh, a few weeks out. But uh, this is, of course, the story of HS2, the sort of final cancellation uh, of the whole of the sort of northern part of HS2. Um, I think why this matters, the big picture story of why this matters is that it's essential for us to build things. We know that. We know that transport links are essential to kind of raising productivity, essential to economic growth. Uh, we know that they're also essential to the green transition. We have to build more onshore wind farms. We have to expand the grid. Um, and there are, I think this is the reason why this is exciting as a journalist is because there are so many questions about this story. So um, Jeremy Hunt in his speech said it cost 10 times more than the equivalent uh, stretch of high-speed rail in France. Why does it cost 10 times more? Could he ask some MPs with marginal constituencies in the Chilterns to explain why they're tunnelling through the Chilterns rather than building overground? Um, why do we need it? So Rishi Sunak has argued that the facts have changed and he quoted, he almost quoted Keynes, didn't he, in his speech saying, I changed my mind. If you look at the rail passenger stats, they're at about 90% of what they were pre-pandemic. Our population's increasing, fewer people are using cars, more people are living in big cities. We're going to need more people on the trains. We're going to need more train capacity. So that argument doesn't stand up. And the other thing, the thing that really puzzles me about this story, though, is that they say they're going to reinvest every penny in transport. So there's no, there's no cost saving. Uh, and when you look at what they're spending the money on, um, $8.6 billion do you think I have this correctly? 8.6 billion is going to be spent on fixing potholes. Are these some very big potholes? <laughs> is it just one big pothole? I have two questions about this story. Is it true, and is it right, that is it true seems to be that Rishi Sunak, in his Conservative Party conference speech, essentially says, we've made a judgment call, the thing's overrun in terms of cost, but we're going to put the £36 billion into a whole load of new projects with a new title, Network North. Is that actually true, or are these a bunch of old pre-announced projects, and actually it's not a new investment in infrastructure versus an HS2 investment? That's the is it true question. And is it right, which is, are running repairs and east-west links more valuable economically than a high-speed spine through the UK? Two great questions. So I think the first one is kind of pretty obviously a journalistic project. There were so many kind of announcements, so many kind of piecemeal announcements. A number of them we know have been announced before. Uh, there was a rail plan that came out in 2021 that announced the, the West Yorkshire mass transit system that was that was part of these, these new announcements. What what is the case is that these previous announcements didn't have money attached before, so they didn't happen. Now, I'm going to get my crystal ball out here and say a lot of this stuff isn't going to happen now. We're going to see this announced. It's going to peter out. Um, the other part of this, um, which is connectivity, that's a question which we need to hear an economist speaking. But my sense of this, as someone who follows this, is to say that linking up the biggest, second biggest and third biggest cities in the UK 
is probably going to contribute more to economic growth than shaving 10 minutes off the journey time from Bradford to Manchester, which is about as good as it gets now. The politics of it is really strange too, isn't it? In that you manage to spring David Cameron, George Osborne, Andy Street, all some of your best Tories. Oh, no, I think the politics of this is simple. Actually, So I think if you look at the core of Rishi Sunak, this is identity politics. So this is migrants. This is motorists. This is men are men. And HS2 is about towns rather than cities. So it's a, this is all about the core vote. I realised, of course, he never won a vote to become prime minister. We've ne- not seen him really make the case for himself. And this was the first moment to do it. In that sense, it was the beginning of the election campaign. Mm. What did you think of it? I thought a couple of other things that struck me from the speech was first this claim that we're doing better than other countries in the G7, France and Germany, not in spite of Brexit, but because of Brexit, which I think is based on figures that came out from the second quarter of this year, where we are sort of on a par with France now in terms of economic growth and ahead of Germany, but still behind the others. I don't think that was true before that particular period of time. So one swallow makes the summer here. A little bit, yes. And I also think it's interesting to point out that actually, if you look at uh, sort of surveys that came out at the end of last year, actually talking to businesses, particularly small businesses that Sunak claims to care about, is that most of them, 77%, say actually they found life harder. Like it's not, I, I can't see how you can argue that it's because of rather than in spite of. But of course, that's exactly the kind of thing, as Stephen said, that's meet your base, right? That's, that's him trying, everyone must have loved that at the conference. What did you think, Clive? Um, you're right. I think it's the opening salvo of of the Conservatives' campaign for the next election, which is uh, just around the corner. Um, and of course, he needed to appeal to the party faithful in ways that you know were pretty straightforward and, and understandable. Um, the difficulty is differentiating himself from the previous 13 years of Conservative rule. And if you're trying to get across that you're a change candidate, how do you do that? Continuing a line of the same uh, political ideas and philosophy um, of the last, you know, more than 10 years. So it's a tricky, tricky thing for him. Stephen, just, let's just finish up with HS2 and I'm going to come to Clive's story if I might. On the second element, the is it right element, because it feels to me as though it would be really easy to get sucked into two camps on, is it true? How much do you think this story matters as a statement in terms of understanding Britain's strategy for itself and Rishi Sunak's strategy for himself? I think on the first question, I think it's a really, it's a really important signal. And I think what it says is that this is a country that lacks confidence this is a country that plans to spend £9 billion on fixing potholes rather than £36 billion on building high-speed rail. Well, I suspect, Clive, that we're going to make a seamless segue from Rishi Sunak's HS2 decision to migration, a deep dive, in that it felt as though the thing that hovered over Conservative Party conference in Manchester this week was this question about migration, multiculturalism, legal immigration, illegal immigration, and the kind of language around boats. So what specifically is your pitch? And then let's get broadly into what that means. I don't think we cover the migration debate properly. I think we too, we spend too much time talking about the pull factors and not the push factors. Hmm. Why are these people leaving Eritrea, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Albania, whatever? 
We do discuss in other parts of, of, of news coverage the war in Iraq, the war in Syria, and so on and so forth, but we never connect the two. Mm. That causal link, I don't think, is, is, is made. And as a result of that, I believe that a skewed idea of who these people are is, is transmitted to the wider population. I mean, at the end of the Second World War, there were 11 million displaced people in Europe. One million were uh, given a life, homes, a future in other parts of the continent. So the international community came together to help them resettle. One million people in 1945-46 and, 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 and so on. That required an international consensus. It required countries coming together to help that happen. Rishi Sunak happens to be in Spain. Um, he's talking to other European leaders about trying to get a coordinated approach to the little boats and the migrants who are trying to get to Lampedusa and Greece and, and flooding into Turkey and trying to get across the channel as well. And that international consensus is vital, absolutely vital. But of course, the attitudes in different countries varies. Mm. Different people, different medias, um, different ideas about migration. Um, and that means getting con a consensus is tricky. But I think it's incumbent on the media, wherever they are, to try to have a holistic approach to the reporting and not just focus on this amorphous mass of people in a boat trying to come over here and steal our jobs and, and whatever. And this isn't, a, this isn't a sort of emotional appeal. It's a factual appeal. Clive, forgive me, I've invited you in and now I'm going to lean in because I think that... If you look at the coverage this week, mm. there are two layers of trap that you could say mm. all media is falling into. Yeah. The first one is the government says, let's talk about small boats. So that becomes a proxy for talking about immigration overall, even when it's a very small minority of the number of people who move and live to the UK, in the Absolutely. UK. Absolutely, yeah. When it comes to discussing net migration, yeah. And then the second issue is when you talk about migration, you, as you say, you understand the pull factors, you understand the impact on welfare services, housing. You don't for a moment think about, if you like, the underreported uh, wars or the endemic uncertainties in certain places. Mm -hmm. But if I propel you, you know, half a mile down the road back mm -hmm. into the BBC newsroom and mm -hmm. say to you, look, look at the run of stories today. Mm -hmm we need to essentially wrestle the immigration agenda away from the Prime Minister and away from the Home Secretary and mm. say, look, you want to talk about small boats because it's neat and emotive. It's not the issue. It's not the issue in terms of understanding migration overall into the UK, and it's not the issue in terms of understanding migration overall. How do you do that without being either bluntly worthy or mm. academic? To the um, audience, I you, you you do that by you do that by by trying to uh, be creative in getting across the facts. So you would have a correspondent knowing that this event was coming up, and we all knew it's in the diary. Um, you would have someone try to report on why a number of people got on boats in Libya who come from Eritrea. So tell the story of what's going on in Eritrea to tie in with this meeting today. You could have off the back of that, the um, Home Affairs editor, Mark Easton, for instance, discussing the actual 
numbers and actually making the point that these people in the small boats are actually a fraction when it, of, of, the, of the wider debate on net migration and people coming to this country. I'm just talking about giving context mm. to this particular uh, issue. And I, I, I just, it just doesn't feel to me as if, as media organizations, we do enough of that. The argument could be that it's not very, you know, it's not very punter friendly. Mm. As you hear the word migration, people switch off. But I think it is incumbent on, on responsible media organizations to give the public the full um, backstory of what's going on because public perceptions I think are affected by the truth and by the facts and we don't do enough of that. And how much are you affected by language? Mm. I mean, everything is everything. One of the elements of it is just getting a sense of your own story, your family's Windrush Mm. story. Mm. How much when you hear about the Home Secretary use the word, you know, hurricane of migration, you know, this sense of a country being overwhelmed... How does that affect you? Well, I mean, you know, people use whatever language they, they, they want to use. I mean, my belief is that, and I, this is how I, I hope, approach most of the stories that I report on, is that I'm talking about individuals, I'm talking about human beings, I'm talking about people for whom there is a connection between the guy living in, in a chip shop, in Bur- above a chip shop in Burnley, and the person who is on the boat. They're both human beings. Mm. They both have desires and wishes and hopes and dreams. Um, And it could be that you're an illegal migrant or a legal migrant. The question is, why is there no sense of solidarity simply by virtue of the fact that you're a human being? Mm. I I don't quite sort of understand where the disparity comes from and, and why we suddenly lose this this carapace of, of, of humanity when we suddenly see people on a, on a boat. I don't quite get that. Jeevan, how do you understand Rishi Sunak's calling out his Home Secretary and his Foreign Secretary and his, mm. you know, Business mm. Secretary and his cast list of people, all of whom have stories of immigration into the UK in their very recent history and at the same time banging the table on small boats. It's, what do you make of that? It's a bit of a puzzle, isn't it? I mean, I think it's, you listen to Tory conference speeches and at the beginning they say Britain is the best country in the world in which to be black. And at the end of it, they say, but we don't want any more black people. So it's like, which is it? Is it a success? Is it a failure? Are you, are you saying it's both at the same time? Um, I can see the tension. I can see that Britain is simultaneously a very diverse society and a very comfortably diverse society. I can I can also see, and I think this is part of the Brexit vote, there's a discomfort around the pace of change. And that's what people are tapping into. And I think that that contradiction is what emerges when people can't quite reconcile the two and don't quite have a language for putting the two together. Yeah, I mean, they would argue, of course, that um, they're not saying we don't want any more black people. They're saying they want people to come here legally. The problem is... You can't. You can't. <laughs> so what do you, what do you that's the conundrum. Clive, what, what do you think, Clive, about the job that is being done in terms of trying to unravel doublespeak? Mm. So one example is that apparently the policy of rendering um, illegal immigrants to Rwanda yeah. is not intended to be a punishment because... 
no one is saying, this is the government talking, that Rwanda is a bad place to go. They would like to lavish praise on the progress of that country. Mm. But then the prime minister calls the policy itself a deterrent. By implication, he's saying that no one wants to go to Rwanda. And likewise, we had this moment, you heard it too, with Nick Robinson's interview with Rishi Sunak on the Today programme, where they get the back and forth about Suella Braverman's language. And at the end, Nick wraps up and says, well, so you're happy with the Home Secretary's language. And Rishi Sunak says, well, those are your words, not mine. And at which point you kind of want everyone to stop and say, all right, well, which one is it? Because language really matters. But the doublespeak has been allowed to continue, i.e. Suella Braverman dog whistles in one way, Rishi Sunak frames it in another kind of managerial reasonableness. How do you think journalists and journalism deals with that particular problem, the doublespeak? It's a really, really, really important question because, you know, you will have leaders who, by depending on the issue involved will feel the need to speak to two completely different audiences, will want to be seen to be reasonable on one hand, but will need to be seen to be offering red meat to their base or whatever on the other. And all you can do as a journalist, I think, is to point that up. Well, I suspect there's a lot more to be had of this story, and I suspect that in the coming election year we might go at it again. Mm. So we might see if we can bundle you into a van and get you from the BBC <laughs> to come back into the podcast studio at Tortoise. But let's take a beat and then, Jess, let's go to your story. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A suicide. Yes, this is a story that deals with suicide just as an early warning. This is a story about Jaisley Beck, who joined the British Army when she was 16. And when she was 19 in December 2021, she was found dead at Larkhill Camp in Wiltshire, where she was serving. And she's believed that she, to have taken her own life after what an army inquiry that was released this week found to be an intense period of sexual harassment by her boss. And I think partly 
this story matters because of what happened to her as an individual. I think the the volume, the intensity of this uh, harassment by her boss is enormous. It blew me away slightly. He sent her more than 1,000 messages and voicemails in October 2021. That rose to 3,500 messages and voicemails in November. It was intense to the degree that she felt he or she was worried he might be tracking her through her mobile phone. He obviously decided what exercises she was going on. He would put himself on those exercises with her and was observed to be trying to follow her around all the time. And this is a woman who also suffered a sexual assault just a few months earlier in July, which happened at a bar in an army base. And she ended the evening sleeping in her car because she was scared to go back to her room. She had a friend on the phone who she asked not to hang up basically till the morning. So she knew she was safe through the night. And the way that that was handled, the inquiry found, could have discouraged her from reporting the harassment by her boss um, a bit later on. Uh, she was involved in two other consensual relationships, but both with men who were significantly older than her, who were significantly more senior in rank than her. And overall, the inquiry just found all of this amounts to a really concerning series of incidents directed at a very young and very junior soldier. And then the just other... Yeah. Is there a system for reporting relationships in the armed forces? I do know that the there was a, a landmark inquiry two years ago by a group of MPs on the Defence Select Committee, which found that the process for uh, complaining about things like sexual harassment and sexual assault was, and I quote, woefully inadequate. The army has made changes since then. The military uh, Ministry of Defence has issued a series of policies aimed at tackling these problems through the armed forces. But then there were more whistleblower accounts that came out in May this year, which the chair of the Defence Committee just said there still is an institutional problem ongoing. And I'm not expecting, obviously, that everything can change within two years. But I think the other part of this story is the institution. It's what it tells you about what it is like serving as a woman in the armed forces still. So, so as you know, I'm always really hesitant around suicide stories because it's very difficult to attribute. You know, and I should say cause. an inquest has not happened yet. So this is still a, an early stage. Even within the context of what we know, how do you argue this story leads the news in that it seems to me obviously awful, but extreme. That level of kind of um, messaging pursuit by a person is terrible, but it's also extreme. It's not necessarily symptomatic of a broader culture necessarily in the armed forces, is it? I think it is. That's why I think it does lead the news. I think this particular example, this particular case is is shocking, and I think perhaps what you might you might read the headline and think, oh, maybe he sent her a dozen messages, and that could constitute harassment. No, it was three thousand five hundred in a month. I mean, just that I think uh, takes your breath away a bit. But I think during the course of this inquiry, they spoke to obviously a number of other women on the same base who said that, and they came to the conclusion that while not everyone, not every man on this base was was an issue, there was a significant minority of soldiers who caused significant problems for the women serving there. And yes, this was two years ago. And yes, I'll say again, the army is trying to make changes. But I do think there is a pattern here where women are still having to face problems they should not have to face trying to serve their country. But it's clearly that culture of impunity, isn't it? I mean, you know, whoever was involved in in send, bombarding this, this this poor woman with the messages clearly had 
psychological issues when it comes to the way that men treat women. Um, and you could say he's a one-off in that regard, potentially. And that goes to James's point about it perhaps being extreme and therefore not, not perhaps the lead. But it does point to a culture where this person clearly believed there'd be no comeback. Yeah. And in fact, the person who did sexually assault this this young woman, um, you know, the the only the only um, sanction was that he had to write to a letter of apology. Yes, and in which part said, of the letter mm, it said, "My, my door, door is, is always, always open." Open, and I, that's it's the atmosphere. Yeah, it's the sense that I can do what I want. It might go over the top, but ultimately I'll be okay. It's that atmosphere that I think um, is pointed up by this particular story, which, yes, might be extreme, but is part of a symptom of a wider culture where you can get away with with doing whatever you like. The enabling environment is what's extraordinary about this, that yeah. there were apparently no fear of the consequences. Yeah. You know, it's hard for me to imagine sending one inappropriate message or two inappropriate messages to a colleague, but to send a 1,000, 3,000. Yes, exactly. I mean, at a point where you're, you're receiving 100 messages yeah. a day, that's incredible. Yeah. Clive, before we go and just sort of have a go at making a call on what story of these three enormous ones would lead the news. What do you feel about... When you come in and you see a running order mm. and it's an individual case mm. that is leading the news mm -hmm. in a world where terrible things are happening to many people in different places mm -hmm. for different reasons, mm -hmm. how do you balance the judgment between an individual story mm. that can capture our imagination and potentially tells us a lot... Mm -hmm. And that fear that you're essentially giving priority to an edge case, a small case, a single mm -hmm, case, mm -hmm. um, at the expense of the bigger picture. Yeah, it's 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 a question actually that we wrestled with um, last week. It was the day that um, it was announced that they were opening up. Uh, the government was opening up this new oil field. Yes, up in up in Scotland, and I think it was the same day as the stabbing in South London. I can't quite remember. I think that's that's the case. And the idea was, it's the 10 o'clock news bulletin of record. Okay, historians will go to this bulletin in 30 years' time, and this will tell them what's going on. In a multi-media you know, media environment where you can get your news from everywhere, is the 10 o'clock news really the bulletin of record that most people turn to? Depending, on, on, it, yes. depending <laughs> on their profile, yes. And if you work on it, yes. But really, you can get your news through the day from a whole host of, of, of providers. And as a result, what is it you're offering at 10 o'clock that, um, that, that the public are going to be interested in, given that they've read news all over the place through the whole day? Are you giving them the big issue you know, net zero is, forget about it. We're opening up a new oil field. This is about, you know, our, our commitment internationally to, to, to the climate and so on. Or the tragedy, the individual tragedy of, of a child, 15-year-old um, stabbed at a bus stop. That's if I've got this right, yeah. that that was the other story. What, and I, nine times out of 10, what I say is, what is my mum going to, going to be watching that's that's what i say scotland net zero 2050 2030 london kids stabbed on our way to school and we went for that story interesting and not the other one 
that's that's a conundrum that you know all newsrooms have, and you have here at Tortoise as well. Let's finish off today's news meeting. Yep. Uh, Clive, I'm going to invite you first. You can't choose your own story. Um, yeah. Which would you choose between suicide at Lark Hill, what tells you about the armed forces, and the cancelling of HS2 up to Manchester? Yeah, it's really, really difficult, really difficult. Um, I mean, I'm a northern, a northern lad, born in, born in Bolton. And the connectivity between across the Pennines has been, for decades, ridiculous. And I've never understood with the HS2 proposal why HS2 and connectivity across the north were not put together. I mean, you know, why was one picked over the other? I don't quite understand. And again, that's happening with the announcement from 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 Rishi Sunak. Um, I I suspect I would probably of those two go for HS two. Jess, what would you choose? I would go with HS two as well because. Actually, more because I think HS2 is the undeniable sort of story of the of the week, really. The week, yeah. Driven? Um As a former foreign correspondent, I'm always fully signed up to the idea of sending people to places. So I'm really <laughs> drawn to Clive's pitch. But I feel that Jess's story sways me because it has that combination of heart and head and because it fits into a theme of other Me Too stories that we've been talking about in the news meeting. All right, well, I'm going to have a go... Truth be told, Clive, I think you cheated because you brought a problem, not a story. <laughs> um, but that said, I actually think that at the end of this week, let's say you were heading into the 10 or you were looking to put out a news publication at the end of the week. Mm. The central point you're making, which is we vilify people as illegal immigrants, but don't provide them the legal routes, mm. is a story. Mm. And actually, I can see a world in which... You stand in front of a screen with the map of the 10 countries from where the largest number of illegal immigrants come mm. and say, let's map with pictures of Suella Braverman and James Cleverly, the foreign secretary, say, let's map exactly what the provision of consular services are in each of those countries mm -hmm. so we can answer the question as to whether or not those people have a choice about legal versus illegal immigration, i.e. you bring it back to Whitehall mm -hmm by taking that tour around those 10 countries. I'd love to see a lead of the news on that because I think that that would provide a way of asking the question, which is, you know, is it our fault or theirs? Mm. So I would, funnily enough, lead on uh, migration, the routes to Britain. Mm. I would probably run second the HS2 story, even though I think it's a piece of political positioning it's a very consequential one, both symbolically and actually in the infrastructure of the country. And I would run the suicide at Lark Hill third, partly because I'd like to understand more how much it fits a pattern in the armed forces. I don't understand it deeply enough. And I may be wrong in that call for that reason. It may be that it fits a pattern and I'm just not sufficiently aware. But for that reason, I would probably run Migration HS2 suicide at Lark Hill. With that, a couple of final things to say. One, if you think that we're all wrong, Jeeve and Jess, Clive and me, drop us a note, newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. As I hope you'll have noticed, 
We take on board your voicemails, your emails, both in terms of making sure that other listeners to the news meeting get to hear what you think, but it's really important to us in challenging and checking the way in which we're thinking about the news. And finally, thank you to you, Clive. Um, Pleasure. These are particularly busy days. There's something bizarre about the news agenda. It feels like mm. there's six working months and then all the rest. <laughs> and September, October, November mm. definitely feel like the working months. Um, thank you for coming in. Thank you also for Everything is Everything. I rather wish more journalists wrote stories that gave you a sense of themselves. Yes. We understand more about the world that you see standing on the roof in Kiev by understanding mm. more of you. So yes. if you're listening to this, go and get Everything is Everything apart from having yeah. probably the best title of a memoir that I can remember, <laughs> it also is a story that kind of cracks open you and your family uh, and, and the heart of your experience. And as a gear change, we're going to leave you with the sound of Suella Braverman giving us her take on multiculturalism and immigration. The wind of change that carried my own parents across the globe in the 20th century was a mere gust compared to the hurricane that is coming. Tortoise. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. 